Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we have the brilliant Kate Vigors, who has spent the last 20 years researching, interviewing, and uncovering the history of the women of the Special Operations Executive. That's right, the SOE, those who operated behind enemy lines in France. She's written a new book, Mission France, The True History of the Women of SOE, and she interweaves the stories of 39 female agents tracing their journey from early recruitment to rigorous training and the work they undertook in the field. That involved evading capture on a daily basis from the Gestapo and undertaking those vital, brave, insanely daring sabotage missions in France in the run-up to D-Day. This is a fascinating history with a brilliant historian. So here it is, Kate Vigors on the women of SOE. Hi Kate, thanks for coming on to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. Great to have you on the podcast. Now, it actually is amazing to hear the history that you have unearthed. 39 female members of the SOE who until now have been pretty much unknown. So let's start with the basics. What was the SOE and what role did women play in it? So the SOE is short for the Special Operations Executive. It was set up in July of 1940. There'd been a series of letters and memos going around the war office. But really, in the wake of the fall of France, it was decided that an organisation was needed that could coordinate and bolster resistance in enemy-occupied countries so that they could move towards the liberation eventually. So when we talk about SOE, a lot of people think it was just France, but actually it's all the way across Europe and even into the Far East. Pretty much anywhere that was occupied by the Nazis had an SOE branch associated with it. It is said that Churchill said to Hugh Dalton, who was the Minister for Economic Warfare, to set Europe ablaze. I've only found that actually as an apocryphal thing in his diaries. But that's very much the idea, to introduce sabotage and subversion, to slow down the German war effort and to pave the way for what would eventually become D-Day and then the Allied liberation of Western Europe. So at this point then, France must have been the most important place that the SOE was operating. Were they also there to kind of keep tabs 
just in case an invasion from Hitler was coming our way. Yeah, absolutely. France was of a very strategic importance. We knew really that we were sort of the last man standing, if you like, in terms of being occupied. So the United Kingdom knew that it needed to protect itself, protect its people. We were sitting alone as an island and the French Channel is only a few miles away. We also knew that France was of strategic importance because that's where the Allied invasions would take place eventually. Obviously, that's still four years away when we're talking about July 1940, but it was clear that it was likely to be France. Also, France was an interesting country in the way that it was occupied because at the beginning it was only occupied by half. He had the occupied zone and then the unoccupied zone or Vichy, as it was known, because that's where the governmental seat was. So there were a lot of reasons that France was such an important branch of the SOE. And because of that, it had lots of different sub branches within it, all working towards different things and different strategies. Was it also more of an amenable environment to work in? Because we had a few people on the podcast recently talking about or SAS or actually even the Danish resistance. And in the Danish case, it wasn't very good to be a resistance fighter in Denmark because you wouldn't last very long because people would rat you out and dob you in. And for that reason, the British didn't really send many SOE executives to try and and help them out over here. You couldn't get much out of the Danes. Could you get much out of the French? You could and you couldn't. So resistance took quite small forms to start off with. We're not talking about blowing up factories right at the beginning, but it's things like underground printing presses, it's propaganda, false propaganda as well. This thing that everybody was in the resistance is a complete misnomer. It's just not true. And of course, France is quite famous as well for collaborators. People were already leaning in that direction and the Nazis, you know, marching through the Arc de Triomphe as they did kind of gave some people the impetus to act the way that they'd been wanting to. And of course, anti-Semitism was a big thing. In fact, the big roundup of the Jewish population in Paris was done completely by the French. There was no German help with that at all. So France was pretty rife with collaborators. There's a really good book called Sweet Francaise, which was also made into a film. Unfortunately, the author ended up in Auschwitz. But she talks about the Gestapo just being inundated with letters from neighbours denouncing neighbours and I want their house and they've done this and they've done that and it's really quite small and petty. So I don't think being a member of the resistance was necessarily an easy thing but there were certain factors that led to it becoming as big as it did. And a bit more support from the SOE due to that pivotal geographical importance. That makes sense. But let's go back a little bit because your work focuses on the women of SOE. So tell me, How on earth, as a woman, do you get recruited to the Special Operations Executive? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Because you can't take out an advert in the Times, can you, and say wanted secret (laughs) agents must speak French. So the decision to use women didn't really come about until 1942. And there's not a particular moment. There's not a point in time where they go, right, we're going to use women. But it just started to become obvious that women were going to be suitable as agents. Selwyn Jepson, who was the SOE interviewer, was very keen to use women and he was trying to find all sorts of ways because in the Geneva Convention, women could not bear arms. So that was the main problem about why they couldn't use women because all agents had to be capable of using a variety of firearms. And then Jepson realised that a certain rank within the ATS would pull a lanyard that would release a trigger on the anti-aircraft guns that were used during the Blitz. And he suddenly went, well, hang on, they're already shooting guns. And he had a bit of a chat with 
Churchill, who said, yeah, OK, let's go ahead and do it. So they started to recruit women, but it's just not that easy to recruit. It's like I say, you can't put an advert out. So they started to look for women in various places, women that were already in the armed forces, for example, the first aid nursing yeomanry or the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, people who were refugees who'd come in across the escape lines in particular because they already had an experience of working with the resistance. A couple of women worked at a place called the Ebury Court Club, which was kind of a gentleman's club, a spy club, and they were recognised as having the right skills. Other people might have filled in a form and it had been sent off or they heard something on the radio and replied that way, photographs of the French coastline, things like that. So that's how women started to be recruited. So what were they looking for in terms of skills? Language obviously has to be really important, but what are the characteristics really defined these women who are part of the SOE? Or is it the fact that there wasn't a kind of clear linear narrative of who to recruit? Were they just all so different? Yeah, they were all very different. And you've only really got to look at the reports that are available in their personnel files just to see their personalities come through. And even in these reports, you go, oh, crikey, I'm not sure I would have sent her based on what that instructor's just said. So, yeah, the ability to speak French, definitely. I mean, that's obvious. Not as obvious as you might think, because some of the blokes were dreadful at the French. An ability to blend in. You didn't want to stand out. You didn't want to be that person crossing the street or the village square and everybody noticed you. You needed to really blend in and have an understanding of the French way of life. For some of them, that was very easy because they'd already lived in France prior to the occupation. For some of them, they found it a bit more difficult to sort of assimilate to the local life. An ability to speak French, ability to blend in, and of course patriotism. Now that be that for Britain or be that for France, because a lot of these women were dual nationality, so they felt that they were fighting for the cause. Some of them would go in because they'd had relatives arrested or things had happened. So motive is a very interesting thing as well. And they would look at that person's motive very, very closely to check that it wasn't too fatalistic and that it was a realistic motive. But yeah, the three requisites are blend in, speak it and have a reason for doing it. Okay, so that's the basics of what you're looking for. Now take us through what a day was like in training for a female special operations executive. So it very much depends on which part of the training, because there were a series of training schools. So once you've got through your interview... You were sent to a preliminary training school that was typically in Surrey, either at Wanborough Manor or Winterfold later in the war. I'm going to talk about the training earlier in the war because it does change. So your preliminary training would be kind of weeding out the unsuitable people. You would be tested on your language skills. You'd be taught to shoot physical training, your ability to work undercover because you've got to live as another person. You can't have your own name. You can't talk about your family or your marriage. You're a new person. One of the things they really encouraged was drinking in the evenings because the more you drank, the more relaxed you came. Did you speak French? Did you speak English? Did you start to tell things that you shouldn't be saying. So the first couple of weeks were really about ironing out the people who weren't suitable. I've only found one file because I don't know all the names of people who didn't pass it, but I found one file of a woman who was just too self-centred apparently and it was in it for her own glory, so she didn't make it. So once you'd passed preliminary training, you'd be sent to the west coast of Scotland to do the paramilitary training, which was essentially commando training. So being taught what to eat, how to eat it, how to 
live off the land, how to survive, all these really difficult things. And firearms in particular, explosives as well, would be taught up there. Although women wouldn't necessarily need to use either, it was important they were trained in that, even if they weren't going to use it in the field. Women were typically couriers or wireless operators. And if they were the latter, they'd then go to Tame Park in Oxfordshire for their wireless training. Parachute training, which was at Ringway, it's now Manchester International Airport. They were supposed to do five jumps to get their wings, but that's where it gets interesting because a woman can't put her wings on her uniform because women just weren't being trained to parachute at this point. And if you did wear them, people would ask questions. So women did do their parachute training and there were a few accidents along the way, a few sprained ankles and broken noses and things going wrong. And then finally, they'd go to Bewley in the New Forest, Bewley Abbey. And there all the country sections actually had their finishing school. So although they weren't supposed to meet, there'd be Poles and Czechs and other nationalities there. And the finishing school was really like you were already in occupied France and there'd be all sorts of exercises. So I think a typical day would be exhausting, (laughs) to be brutally honest. I think you'd be shattered mentally and physically. And a lot of them said, I'm not cut out for this at the beginning. I can't do this. And then as they went through the training, they started to prove more and more that they could. And especially women's weapons training really surprised some of the instructors. You know, crikey, they're quite good with this knife, aren't they? Or quite good with their hands of this silent killing business. Who knew a girl could do that? Well, yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's not really surprising, is it, when you look back? Because you think about these people who are volunteering to be part of the Special Operations Executive. You've got to be a volunteer and you're keen to get in there and to maybe either avenge something that's happened to your family or, like you say, you're a real patriot. And this is different to a a lot of those guys out there who are drawn up in the conscriptions and forced to go through their training and don't even really want to fire a gun. So, You know what, I think we can definitely say, looking back, that um, these women deserve to have some recognition for just how pretty badass they were. Yeah, yeah, they're just incredible. Some of the things that they got up to, climbing firemen's ladders and midnight drenchings in rivers and blowing things up. I mean, yeah, you'd have to be an incredible person just to get through that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Well, take us through some of these missions then, because specifically if you were in Section F, is that right? Then that means you were going to be sent into France. How would a daring mission like that go down and what sort of missions have you come across? So, yeah, F section is occupied France primarily, and that was the section was run by a guy called Maurice Buckmaster and then a lady called Vera Atkins underneath him. So primarily, a lot of us historians don't like it when people call them spies because they weren't there to gather intelligence, particularly. There was an element of that, but the real crux of it was sabotage and subversion. It was about slowing down the German war effort. Now, the whole of France was divided into what looks a bit like a patchwork quilt with different sections, and they all had quite weird names. They were all occupations, so headmaster, bricklayer, scholar, historian, one of my favourites. So they're all divided up. There's a section leader, and then you have a team working underneath him. And it always started off as a him. Some women did take over when their section leaders were arrested, but it was never thought that women could lead. It was thought they could take orders. So each section would then have a mission. So the mission might be to cut that power line or to blow up a certain factory. It might be to recruit resistance. One thing I haven't mentioned and why women are so important, actually, is the forced labour programme. So the Germans forced young men of a working age, of army age, to go into forced labour for the German war effort. That could be in factories or munitions. And what that meant was there was this kind of dearth of young men and it meant women could move around more freely because they weren't called up into this programme. So this is why women were so successful in what they did. 
And some of the men didn't want to do it and they went off and formed something called the Maquis, which is a resistance that lived out in the hills and in the woods. So some of these missions would be to work alongside the Maquis. Now, within the Maquis, France is a lovely, complicated country. Everybody's got different politics. There's loads of things going on. You've got the communists, you've got the Gaullists, and they're all infighting as well as fighting the Nazis. So SO is like, come on, guys, one battle at a time. Let's get rid of the Germans and then we'll worry about the rest of it. So that was kind of their job, really, was to coordinate everybody and to get them organised. And they came up with some amazing things. One of my favourite stories is something called the blackmail sabotage. So they were noticing that if the RAF were responsible for bombing, I'm not putting the RAF down in any way, but there would be a certain amount of collateral damage because the bombs are aerial and they might hit the target. But unfortunately, they might hit the village hall or some houses nearby. And what they realised was if you bombed it from the inside, if you laid plastic explosive inside and just targeted certain bits of machinery, you could get rid of all that collateral damage. But you had to have the permission of the factory owner to do it. And people like Harry Ray went in and basically sat down. I think he was the Michelin factory, as in the Michelin tyres. And he sat this guy down and said, let me bomb your factory, because if you don't, I'll just let the RAF come and do it. And we know how that can go. So this blackmail sabotage was really an incredible thing that SOE came up with. And a lot of the missions are laying the land for D-Day as well. You know, they knew that D-Day was coming. And so they wanted to arm and prepare the resistance. They wanted to reconnoitre targets. They wanted to get the ammunition dumps primed and ready. People needed to learn how to use weapons. We dropped Sten guns by their thousands and millions into France. And the night before D-Day, the resistance just came into its own and all these missions came to fruition as railway lines were blown up and power lines were cut, phone lines were cut. And the phone lines were really important, actually, because because of the phone lines, the Germans had to resort to radio, which we'd already cracked the Enigma code by then. And so we were well on top of the game with thanks to the resistance, really, ahead of D-Day. So every little plan that had been put into place since 1940, 41, 42, started to fall in place in 44 as we moved towards D-Day. I've got to ask, though, why did we need to ask the factory owners permission to blow up their factories? I think it was just a courtesy because we're British. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd have just done it anyway. <laughs> but I think it was also clear the workers out, make sure everybody's out. But no, you're right, you could have just gone in anyway. Now, I'm making it all sound a bit gung-ho and fun and of course it's not because there are reprisals for every act of sabotage there were reprisals and they were huge they were indiscriminate as well they would just round people up in the prisons and shoot them or deport them so while it all sounds like a boy's adventure story or a girl's adventure story in my case it's not it's an exceptionally dangerous role and it's dangerous for anyone who knows you or is even in the village where you're working well, absolutely. And so many of the people you describe are amazing. I was going through some of the characters in your book, some of these real life figures in our history, Yvonne Baston, Julianne Eisner, Sonia Butt, to name but three, and so many more. But you're right, it wasn't a happy ending for all of them, was it? There was a risk. There's a huge risk. As a wireless operator, they were told there was a life expectancy of six weeks. And as they departed, they were told their chances of survival were 50-50. So very much. And I just mentioned Yvonne Baisden. I was really lucky to meet her and spend quite a lot of time with her. Just the most remarkable woman. Her story is so sad because it's all circumstantial that it happened. But she was at the largest daylight drop of the war at the time, just after D-Day, in the Jura region and 
hundreds of parachutes were dropped in. And she said, you know, what a remarkable thing, knowing this hope was coming in behind D-Day. And their depot was a cheese factory and they hid all the weapons. And then they told their lookout that they were going somewhere else after they'd picked up all the equipment. And they didn't. They went back to their depot and the Germans came and they all managed to hide very successfully. But they left one guy behind and he eventually twigged that there were people there. One man took his suicide pill and he died. He was shot as well. But one by one, they were all brought out and taken to the local prison in Dijon where Yvonne was treated very badly. She had her toes stamped on. They fired in between her feet and treated her very roughly. And she eventually ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp. She was very ill with tuberculosis, but she did get liberated and survive. But yeah, just a remarkable, self-effacing lady. I can't imagine what it would be like when you're being briefed and being told you've probably got a six-week life expectancy or a 50-50 chance of even ever coming back. But they knew this, right? Because every single one of them was given a suicide pill. Yeah, they were offered a suicide pill. They didn't have to take it. But as they were going through their final checks before they parachuted or boarded their Lysander or whatever, yeah, they were given the option of taking a cyanide tablet with them. I've come across no evidence that any of the women took them. I know some of the men did. This guy I mentioned, Gonzague, was his nickname. They know that he took his. Some people didn't take them for religious reasons. They said, I'll deal with whatever comes my way. So they could be hidden in your locket or inside a lipstick. You could have it nearby. But yeah, and it's voluntary. We must express this. There was no coercion at all. In fact, Vera Atkins said the worst thing you could do is go out there and not be sure about it. And even if you're boarding the steps of the Lysander or getting on the Hudson with your parachute on your back, you could still back out at that point. But once you obviously once you're up in the air that you were sort of committed by then. It is a remarkable history. And thank you so much for bringing it to us, Kate. How many of the families or those who served were you able to talk to in your research? I've managed to make contact with a fair few people. I've been doing this longer than I want to admit. So I was really lucky to meet a lot of the agents and the official historian, MRD Foote, spent a lot of time with me. And like I say, I met Yvonne. I spent a weekend in France with Pearl Witherington, Pearl Cornioli, as she later became. And she was a formidable woman, even in her 80s. You didn't want to cross her. And I ate snails because she told me I had to. There was Pearl. Yeah, and, and I met some of the families. I met Buckmaster's son. I've spent time with Yvonne Cormo's daughter. But it's not easy easy to contact these people because they've all got different surnames now and they live all over the world. So try as I might, it still remains quite a little secret network of people. So it's always nice if a relative wants to talk and you learn more about their relatives as you go along as well. And suddenly they become human beings, which is fascinating. They're not just a name on a page or a report in a journal. They're suddenly really interesting people. Were they ever surprised that you knew as much as you did because this is all pretty secret stuff, Kate. No one's meant to know this. I know. When I first met Yvonne, she said, well, why do you want to know about the war? I've done so much since. I said, (laughs) sorry, but I'm studying the war bit of this. Yeah, I mean, the files are out there. They're in the National Archives. I came to this, I suppose, about 20 years ago and I started my PhD and the files were becoming more and more open. The thing with the files is they're not complete... At the headquarters was Baker Street. There was a fire at Baker Street and they also, what they called, weeded the files. So they got rid of ones that they didn't want. So we can't get the full picture. You can only evaluate the sources that are available and in the public domain. And that's kind of what I've done. I've taken the available sources and then try to string together what happened around it. But for each woman, you've got a mammoth task. So to do all 39, I think, was... 
it's been exhausting. It's been fascinating. But I could have written a book about each of them. They're all such incredible people with amazing stories and not all of them successful. Some of them weren't very good agents. Some of them got sent home. Some of them had rows with their circuit leaders. So, you know, it's not all happy stories. Not all happy stories, but every single one you bring to life is absolutely fascinating. So I've got to ask, Kate, where can people read more about these brave, heroic women of SOE? So the book is called Mission France, the true story of the women of SOE, although it is only F section. And it's out with Yale University Press very soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kate. And we look forward to having you on the podcast again soon. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.